Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Hey there, and thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter, and it's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. This show is a part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network, so if you enjoy ag-related podcasts, blogs, and vlogs, head over to farmruralag.com. Well, here we are still in our series, Sustainability at Scale, and I couldn't be more excited for this episode. Uh, I knew when I started this series, I wanted to get someone on this show from the Nature Conservancy. And there is a chance when you hear the Nature Conservancy, you automatically associate that with a conservation group, uh, which would be correct. In fact, uh, the Nature Conservancy is the leading conservation organization working around the world to protect ecologically important lands and waters for nature and people. Now, a lot of people in agriculture have preconceived notions about conservation groups and um too many times rush to a conclusion that they may be at odds with agriculture. And I think the Nature Conservancy is extremely unique and effective when it comes to accomplishing their mission. And when I say effective, I'm, I'm referring to the fact that they have protected more than 119 million acres of land and thousands of miles of rivers worldwide. Uh, they're impacting conservation in 72 countries, and they address a lot of proactively, they address a lot of threats to conservation, including climate uh, climate change, clean water, uh, ocean health, etc. That's not unique to conservation groups necessarily, although it shows how effective they are. I think what, a couple things that make them unique is, is number one, uh, they are rooted in good science. They want the facts. They really want to understand a problem before they commit resources to, to, to trying to solve it or propose solutions. Also, and this is what strikes me maybe more than anything, they tend to pursue very non-confrontational, pragmatic solutions to conservation challenges. You'll hear examples in here with our guest today of how they work with people in agriculture, with governments, with private entities, uh, with citizens that have a stake in the solutions uh, and, and in the um, in the conservation efforts that that they're putting forward. And I think it's really, really interesting and unique and one of the things that makes them very, very effective. We have on the show today, Michael Doan. Uh, Michael is the Managing Director of Agriculture and Food Systems for the Nature Conservancy. He grew up in a farm family, worked in agribusiness, uh, not the typical background of someone you think works at a conservation group, but he understands agriculture from both the production side and the agribusiness side. A very fascinating perspective, an extremely interesting interview. I think you're going to love this. We start off with Michael answering the question, what is the Nature Conservancy? Yeah, the Nature Conservancy is a longstanding organization. We've got a, a history that dates back, you know, well over 60 years. It was, it's got kind of an interesting beginning. Uh, it was started by a group of uh, citizen scientists in upstate New York who um, had been convinced that there was a rare plant that was endangered and that if they didn't take action, that this plant would cease to exist. And so they actually, um, you know, took out second mortgages on their homes and raised some uh, money to literally go buy the land and protect the plant. 
and uh, then, you know, effectively then started what is now known as the Nature Conservancy. And so the Nature Conservancy started out really as a land trust, you know, this idea that there are special places and special uh, species and plants that need protection. And one way to do that is to literally, you know, own and manage or put an easement on land in a way that it would be managed uh, to preserve that nature. And that's really, I think, uh, Tim, how most people you know, honestly know the Nature Conservancy. They've been exposed to, um, you know, this activity, you know, maybe in, in their state or in their uh, area. And, uh, you know, so that's kind of how we've gotten started. The Nature Conservancy really started, you know, the Modern Land Trust. And now there's many groups that do this, and uh, some do it in a different way than the Nature Conservancy. And, and we still do a little bit of that. But honestly, we've now started to um, morph and change as we've realized that, um, you know, the pressures on nature are uh, getting greater. Um, we are uh, doing our best, I think, to uh, together grapple with the population growth, the income growth, uh, the extra resources that are required to sustain, um, you know, uh, humans and, and just keep everything moving in the right direction. And so we've uh, we've started to now think about how can the Nature Conservancy uh, become uh, a better partner with governments, with businesses, with private uh, individuals at getting uh, nature and, and, and really thinking about the way nature can function, um, you know, with and for people and then how people can protect nature. And seeing this as kind of a, a dual opportunity where it's not a trade-off of you know, nature uh, for people or nature against people or people against nature, but it's really um, how can we uh, really create conditions where both people and nature thrive? And I know that sounds a little bit esoteric, but I think our, our, our guiding principles are, you know, we're really guided by science. Uh, we think it's important to, to, to know and understand and let science lead us, you know, on this path. Uh, we're very pragmatic. Uh, we understand that uh, business uh, brings value in the way that um, you know people make decisions and organize economic activity. The government, um, you know, is really the 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 you know the mechanism uh, in democracies to make decisions for the public good. So we really try to work in all of those places in a way that's very uh, very much a partnership. Uh, you won't see us campaigning. <laughs> you won't see us. Uh, trying to raise fears, um, you know, uh, in a way that's not helpful. Uh, we are a very hopeful organization and really uh, guided by our goal to see land and water conserved for future generations. And so that's that's uh, that's uh, some of the distinguishing characteristics about the Nature Conservancy, Tim. At what point did that goal lead the Nature Conservancy to agriculture? Well, I'm relatively new to the Nature Conservancy. I've only been on staff for a couple of years, but I got my introduction to the Nature Conservancy uh, several years ago um, when I was working in agribusiness and, and had the opportunity to start to get to know people that were working on agricultural issues. Um, you know, the Nature Conservancy, I think, probably didn't really have anybody with a title, you know, that dealt with agriculture until just a few years ago, maybe, you know, uh, seven or eight years ago. Um, but I think that, you know, say over the last decade, uh, which is fairly recent in our 65-year history, but over the last decade, uh, the organization is uh, coming to realize that, that agriculture is a big part of both the challenge and the solution 
to improving nature. And so, uh, you know, we've really started moving in this direction over the last decade. And, and now today we're, we're doing quite a lot work, quite a lot of work and, and increasing our efforts on agriculture around the world. And Michael, could you give us a, uh, an example or two of, of the type of projects in agriculture that uh, you're working on? Well, sure. Uh, in the United States, which is uh, where we were founded and, and where we have our deepest capacity, we've been very active for uh, many years looking at uh, issues of water quality. And, uh, you know, in many areas, um, you know, in the U.S. where we've got, uh, you know, rivers and, and um, you know, uh, they're draining agricultural landscapes and things like that. We've got uh, situations where we've got movement of fertilizers and nutrients and manures into those waterways. They cause eutrophication and water quality degradation. Uh, they can kind of, you know, they can often make those water, um, water supplies unsafe for drinking or for other uses. And so we've been working for a long time on the Mississippi River Basin. And this is a huge drainage area. It drains 31 states in the, uh, in the lower 48. So it, it's the largest, largest watershed in the, in the continent. And it's very complex when you look at the water quality issues across, you know, this vast watershed. Uh, you know, it is, it is, you know, it's not a new phenomena, but it's uh, been creating what's known as a hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico. This is an area where, you know, the, the drainage really uh, ends and uh, it empties into the Gulf of Mexico. And what it's been carrying with it is, um, you know, uh, nutrients and sediment and sometimes pesticides that, that tend to then stagnate in the Gulf and it causes an algal bloom. So these uh, nutrients enrich uh, algal growth in the, in the Gulf uh, when this grows and then dies, it deoxygenates a big, large column of water, an area you know that's often um, you know uh, you know you know quite large and really affects the fisheries in that area. Uh, creates kind of a lifeless zone, if you will, in the Gulf. And so, uh, you know, many people have been concerned about this. Many people working on it. We've been working on it as well. You know, how can we start to reverse the damage that's going on? Uh, we recognize that agriculture is important in the Mississippi River Basin. You know, you've got the central U.S. Corn Belt. You've got a lot of uh, the world's agricultural uh, breadbasket sitting in this area. And so we're looking at how can fertilizer management be improved. We're working with the fertilizer industry to help implement something called the four R's for fertilizer management, which is really about incorporating practices to improve precision management of, of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. Uh, we're now starting to work on uh, soils and see how if we start to manage soils differently, we could really change the hydrology and the nutrient cycling of those soils, make them much more biologically active so that they're uh, cycling nutrients in a way that's more efficient and maybe over time starts to re reduce uh, the applied nutrient requirements. So, you know, those are uh, some activities that we're working on, you know, with partners. Uh, we often, you know, um, help put together the funding and some of the ideas that could go to go into the marketplace. But then we often look for partners to help us get that job done. And so uh, that's one place that we're working today. Uh, we have also work in uh, a place like uh, Brazil, where, um, you know, one of the real key concerns there is the rate of deforestation and habitat conversion, uh, because as um, food demand grows, and especially in a place like China, 
where they're rapidly increasing the demand growth for soybeans. Um, it's causing um, farmers to want to expand uh, the land that they're putting into production for things like soybeans. And so we've seen a, a tremendous growth in the area under production in Brazil for soybeans. And most of that is coming out of uh, a biome called the Cerrado, which is uh, uh, technically a forest. Uh, some people might think about it as it's not the Amazon. It's not a, a hugely diverse tropical forest, but nevertheless, it's a forested biome and it's being converted rapidly to soybeans. Um, we would like to see that um, you know, minimized and we'd like to see that expansion perhaps redirected into areas that would be less damaging. And so uh, we're working uh, with a lot of the, the major grain originators, companies like Bungie and Cargill and ADM to help them think about where they site facilities and how they could draw incentives, financial incentives around the siting of these facilities to to kind of steer the the path of expansion in the areas that would be less damaging. Uh, we understand that, you know, as food demand grows, farmers want to expand production, there will be some expansion. But we also think it can be done in a way that um, does the least amount of harm to nature and really uh, creates the optimal kind of production environment long term. So those are Two examples of work we're doing um, today on agriculture. One thing that strikes me about both of those examples, as you mentioned, you kind of get the funding and do some research and, and generate ideas, and then you go with these partners. And, and in those two examples, at least, the partners were in private industry rather than maybe going and, and lobbying the government. Is, is that a hallmark of the Nature Conservancy where, you, where you're really partnering with private industry, or is it, it just kind of those happen to be the two examples? Yeah, we pride ourselves on, um, you know, being a partner of choice with private sector companies who, who are, you know, trying to do the right thing. You know, we, we obviously sit down with, with organizations and share our ideas and listen to their ideas. And if we think we can make common cause and we can really make progress at a meaningful scale, uh, we're very happy to work with, uh, with, with large companies, small companies, farmers of all sizes. We're, we, uh, we, we just know that that's the way things are going to get done. I will point out that in both of the examples that I've just uh, provided, though, that there is some enabling policy that really sets the framework for, uh, say, the Clean Water Act in the U.S. And, you know, EPA set a, a targeted reduction of, you know, of reduced nutrient loss in the Mississippi watershed by, say, I think it's 20 20 percent by 2025. And they've got targets that go on beyond that. So we've just kind of aligned behind those targets and we're um, really working, you know, in a voluntary way with producers to try to achieve those targets. Uh, we'd much rather do that than come out and really argue for aggressive legislation that would maybe limit uh, farmers' abilities to choose the ways that are going to be most efficacious to get those targets. In Brazil, uh, there is a, a law on the books called the Forest Code, which really sets forward the idea that you know, uh, even though it may be land that's titled to a farmer, uh, there's still an obligation on how much that farmer can clear. Uh, and depending on the biome, it will depend, you know, they could clear either 20% or up to 80% of that land for agriculture, leaving the rest for nature. And so that's enabling policy that we, um, you know, we're very uh, active in trying to help uh, bring, bring about. But we've also worked hand in hand with companies then uh, underneath of that policy to really think about how expansion can occur in a way that, as I mentioned before, is least damaging to nature, but also uh, most attractive for business. 
And Michael, obviously, there, there's no shortage of, of problems to try to solve and, and resources are limited. How does the Nature Conservancy decide which strategic priorities to pursue? What's that process look like? Well, we just went through a fairly significant review uh, on, you know, kind of if you look at, you know, the state of the planet and, you know, trends out through 2050, you know, are we working on the right things? Are we working in the right ways with the right partners? Should we make some changes? And and one of the things that came out of that strategy review was uh, actually that agriculture and food systems are a much greater priority for the organization. So we've already, um, you know, kind of decided that, you know, working on agriculture and working on these issues is a higher priority. And that's because it touches so many issues. It touches um, our concern on climate change in a, in a very significant way. Um, you know, agriculture and the way it's, you know, both the direct emissions and that expansion of agriculture is uh, linked to about you know 25 to 30 percent of the global emissions, uh, GHG emissions. Um, it's the biggest use of land in, in the world. Um, you know, in terms of uh, habitable land, it's uh, occupying about 38 percent of the land area today. Uh, it's the largest use of fresh water. So you know, about 70 percent of uh, fresh water withdrawals are for agriculture. And so. When you look at the trends and then you, um, as FAO suggests, we're going to uh, need about 60 to 70 percent more food just to uh, keep people well fed um, through mid-century. Uh, it's going to it's really important then for us to be working on agriculture uh, as, as we think about those current um, emissions and land use trends and water use trends. Uh, we don't have another planet to go uh, produce that 60 or 70 percent more food. So we'll need to find better ways to, to work on agriculture. Within that, then, uh, we have set priorities based on our reading of the, of the science and the, and the issues. Uh, the first priority is uh, to protect critical habitat, and this has multiple benefits. First is to uh, protect biodiversity and, and its importance, um, you know, especially in tropical forests, uh, which are often subjected to conversion right now for certain commodities such as palm oil or soybean production or beef production. Uh, there is um, a lot of momentum on, on uh, companies ascending to kind of a zero deforestation code in their supply chains, but implementing that is still a challenge. Uh, our second major priority is restoring degraded lands. And today, uh, what we know is, uh, you know, uh, of the cropland that's in production today, uh, there's about 12 million hectares each year that become so degraded because of the management practices that they're abandoned. So they actually are, uh, farmers pull out of these areas and move on to other land. Well, 12 million hectares is, is a huge area. It's like, you know, roughly the size of Iowa in terms of a land area. Uh, and, and if you can imagine that that's the amount of cropland that is being abandoned each and every year because it's been uh, managed in a way that it's uh, lost its productivity, um, you know, that's simply unacceptable. So we want to work with farmers and ranchers to, to think about practices that can kind of slow that degradation and actually reverse and maybe even restore crop plans to be more productive uh, with management practices on soil health or better grazing practices. Our third priority is on freshwater systems. And, um, you know, really uh, agriculture is a major user of water, as I mentioned. It's also a major polluter of water um, uh, situation. So we have uh, fertilizer runoff or uh, manure runoff that contributes to a lot of water quality problems. Um, so the good news on most of this is that 
management practice change can really address a lot of these issues. And as I know, myself being part of a farm family, no farmer wakes up and says, well, today I want to pollute the waterways or today I want to emit more greenhouse gas emissions. Um, nobody ever thinks about uh, their their job that way. We know that farmers want to be good stewards. And so we see this as really working hand in hand with farmers on practices and changes and incentives that will help them do what they want to do, which is to leave a legacy with their land, uh, that it's um, that it's really contributing solutions for the environment. And so these are our biggest priorities. Um, the fourth thing that I would just mention is that um, uh, we are, as an organization, totally committed on the issue of climate change. We feel like it's a systemic threat to our mission. Uh, we could do everything else well. We could conserve land and water. But if we don't address the systemic threat of climate change, uh, all of that could be undone you know, by the end of the century. And so uh, we are uh, really calling for more investment in what we call natural climate solutions. Uh, these are solutions where emissions could be reduced um, by managing forests and managing agriculture or coastal wetlands in different ways, in ways that could actually sequester and hold a significant portion of the emission reductions that we're going to need between now and 2030 to be on this two-degree path that was agreed to in Paris a couple of years ago. And so we're really championing the idea that agriculture can and should be seen as a sink. And it should be invested in as such. Uh, we should be investing in grassland management and cropland management practices, uh, providing incentives to farmers and ranchers uh, to support these kinds of investments so that we can get on that two-degree path and find other technologies that will help us decarbonize the economy. But in the meantime, there's some very cost-effective emission reduction opportunities sitting right here in agriculture. And now just a quick word from our Sustainability at Scale series sponsor, Marone Bio Innovations. Hey, ever heard of Marone's Bio with Bite? Marone Bio Innovations offers modern crop pest protection for the modern organic and conventional production systems. To make sure every grower using their products realize the best possible return on investment, Marone invests time and resources to thoroughly test and demonstrate the efficacy of those new state-of-the-art products. With serious trial data to back it up, you can see more and connect directly with Marone by visiting them at www.maronebio.com. That's M-A-R-R-O-N-E-B-I-O.com. Thank you so much to Marone Bio Innovations for sponsoring this Sustainability at Scale series. I, I definitely want to get back to, to the, the climate change point because that sounds like a really important one. Um, but actually, even even on the same lines, but more directly related to soil health, I saw that that the Nature Conservancy has a, a Rethink Soil initiative uh, with the vision uh, that by 2025, 50% of the corn, soy, and wheat acres will be managed for optimal soil health. Could you just elaborate a little bit on what exactly that means and what the steps might be to getting there in the next uh, seven years? Sure. Well, you know, it just again, um, you know, if we look at, um, you know, what's happened with the way that croplands have been managed over, say, the last 100 to 150 years uh, in the United States and in many other countries, um, what we've seen is a slow uh, degrading of what's called the organic material in soils. And soil organic material is a really good um, uh, kind of fingerprint of the living fraction of soils. And what we're finding is that, you know, um, perhaps a, a native prairie soil or a forest soil 
that's been converted to, to agriculture or cropland. It may have started out with uh, five, six, seven percent sole organic matter. That means that about about that percentage was, you know, in some way, shape, or form, a living fraction of that soil. And now many of the soils that farmers are um, you know, managing today in the heartland are, you know, are just half of that, or even a third of that, or even 20% of that original number. And that's happened because we've, as we've managed these soils, we've tilled them, uh, we've, we've managed them in ways that have uh, slowly degraded that living fraction. And that has unwittingly um, kind of caused a loss of productivity. It's, ca- it's also ha- created a huge conservation issue. Uh, these soils uh, do not have as much water holding capacity. They did not cycle the nutrients as well as they could or should. And so then there's also an economic opportunity to upgrade these soils, to, to bring them back. And what we now know is that that's possible. Uh, it's possible to actually take soils that have seen a slow uh, degradation of their, of their living fraction, of their uh, biological function, and change that. And you know, some of the changes that you know, really start to um, you know, be most important, one is to, is to uh, reduce tilling and to take tillage out if we can. Uh, second is to keep a more diverse uh, plant cover on those soils all the time. So that can start with, um, uh, you know, having a longer rotation, so more crops in the rotation rather than just one or two crops uh, on soils usually. Uh, if we can lengthen that out and get several crops in a rotation, that diversity above ground will be mimicked below ground. And then third, you know, cover crops really kind of start to serve as a wonderful opportunity for us to introduce much more uh, biomass into the soil. And so, you know, cover crops are crops that are not grown for a cash, um, uh, for cash uh, sales. They're actually grown primarily uh, to create uh, biomass and cover for the soil. And anytime you've got a living root in that soil, you're going to be creating, um, you know, you're going to be investing in that soil organic matter fraction, that living fraction of the soil. You're going to be increasing that over time. So there's, and there's many other products that are starting to come in, you know, different kinds of soil amendments. And um, what's also exciting is now some of the largest, you know, ag companies in the world are starting to look at this issue of how could we invest in soils? How could we productize, you know, some of the things that uh, farmers are trying to do with cover crops? How could we make that something that we could, um, you know, kind of, you know, kind of put it, put out there as a product and, and mass merchandise the, the product? So there's just a lot of opportunity for us to uh, change soils in a way where they, from our perspective, they would be um, uh, sequestering and storing more carbon. Uh, they could be cycling nutrients much more effectively and productively, uh, driving um, you know uh, higher yields with lower input requirements, and they could be holding water much more effectively, which would be huge uh, during dry periods um, and and would also help with flood risk mitigation and other things downstream. Uh, There's good reasons this isn't happening though. And, you know, farmers are, you know, very smart. You know, they're going to be, you know, focused on, you know, what pays. And right now, uh, there's a real open question about whether this economically works for a farmer. And, um, you know, just some of the things that we found is operationally, what I've just talked about, you know, switching from some of the things farmers are doing today to starting to incorporate all these different practices in is operationally difficult. And there's, it brings in questions about, you know, new equipment, 
and the sequence of operations. And so there's just a gap in the knowledge and also the bandwidth that farmers have to really do some of the extra operations like planting cover crops. Um, another issue that we've identified is that most of the land uh, today that's farmed in the U.S. is actually owned by somebody that's not the farmer. It's actually uh, a non-operating landowner. And this could be, you know, a retired farmer that's living in the community. It could be somebody that, you know, has, uh, you know, was once on a farm but moved to a little ways away and they're not in agriculture anymore, but they've kept the land uh, or they've or they've moved a long ways away or, you know, it's an investor. You know, it's an investor situation where it's, you know, it's not somebody that's owning it as family land, but they're simply investing in the land. In all of these instances, what we're finding is that there's a big disconnect between uh, the farmers and the landowners on this issue. The landowners are mainly looking at the financial return of the, of the land, uh, often the lease terms uh, for farmers are very short term. Um, so they're kind of year to year or they're very uh, non-secured essentially uh, for, for, for the long term. And the, the basic premise behind uh, managing for soil health is to start to see soils as a long-term asset, that if you invest in these soils over time, they will fundamentally change, and they will change over 5, 10, 15 years. And so your planning horizon has to be aligned with that. And what we're finding is that the planning horizon for farmers that are renting land from landlords is often short-term in nature just because of those lease terms. Many other things that we could point to, but I think the final thing I would point to on this is that the trusted advisors of farmers will probably make the biggest difference on how quickly we can see um, you know, uh, a transformation in the way soils are managed in the U.S. And right now, by our calculus, there's something less than 10% of, of cropland areas that are managed, you know, optimally for soil health, where they're doing these practices or, you know, some version of these practices and really uh, thinking about the, the health of the soils as a primary objective in their, in their operation. To get that to 50%, the only way we can see that happening is if ag retailers and crop consultants and people that are the most trusted advisors of farmers really start to take on these ideas and bring those ideas to farmers and bring products and services around that. So that's another area that we're uh, really working on. Uh, we rolled out this roadmap to soil health a couple of years ago. It's been very well received and we're partnering with a lot of people to get this done. This is not going to be done by the Nature Conservancy, uh, but we are calling for um, increased um, investment and action to this end because we think it could be one of the best things where the conservation community and the farming community can really show that agriculture is the solution. It's the solution on climate change. It's a solution on water quality. It's a solution on flood risk mitigation. And it can be great for farmers. It can be great economically for farmers if we get this right. Yeah, I love it. And, and uh, for those of you listening, if you want to hear a good example of some of the principles Michael's talking about, uh, go back to episode 99 with Jason Mock. We had him on the show to talk about how he uses uh, cover crops and intercropping and manure management to build organic matter in his soil. So uh, very, very timely comments because that fits right in with this sustainability scale series we're, we're working on. Michael, to, to shift gears just a little bit, I, I want to 
ask you kind of just the more of the behind the scenes, kind of the model of how the Nature Conservancy works. I, I know I, I had read uh, an old headline from Bloomberg calling it Nature's Nature's Own Hedge Fund, and I don't know how, how true that is, but but can you just tell us a little bit more about the model, as in how you're funded and how you evaluate effectiveness going forward? Well, that's a good that's a good headline, and I hadn't seen that, uh, but uh, it's it in a way, I guess you could you could say that we. We have been one of the, the the biggest champions for this idea that investing in nature is a good investment, and I should try to explain that a little bit more. I, it's not just a saying. I think we actually believe it. That you know, there's there's um, in just the way I kind of outlined on on kind of investing in soils that you know making an investment in the way that the soil biology is uh, is safeguarded and enhanced. It's really functional biodiversity. It's really investing in the uh, well-being of, uh, you know, the microbiome um, and the plant diversity. Um, and it's going to create a return uh, for uh, that landowner when we do it. So uh, we do believe that biodiversity kind of has its own value. You know, so when we see, uh, you know, the Amazon rainforest or we see a diverse you know, prairie landscape, that's biodiversity, and it's it's got its own value, its own intrinsic value. But then there's also functional biodiversity, and and that's you know kind of significant in its own right. It 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 creates um, you know things for people. You know, it creates uh, food, it creates clean water, clean air, uh, it creates a functional benefit uh, for humankind. And so we've been championing this idea that. Uh, we should be investing more in nature, not less. We should be investing in solutions that come through nature. And and um, and a, a good example is that is our work on what we call water funds. And um, we we do have an investing arm, a social impact investing arm called NatureVest, which has been uh, stood up to really kind of champion this idea of impact capital. That uh, if people want to invest in nature, we can kind of give them options that will generate. Uh, good returns, good returns for their investment, but also real benefits in terms of conservation. And so this idea of a water fund, we've now developed several of these around the world, but one I'd just maybe uh, point to is in um, in East Africa, in Kenya, um, the what we're calling the Nairobi Water Fund. And there's a river uh, that is the source water for uh, the city of Nairobi. It's called the Upper Tana River. And uh, Nairobi's, you know, a very fast growing city for four to five million people and growing fast. And the city itself accounts for about 60% of the country level GDP. So it's a very important kind of economic center for the country. Uh, the Tana River provides about 95% of the water uh, for the city, and it's about 50% of the country's hydropower electricity. And if you can believe this, um, 60% of Nairobi's residents don't have uh, access to reliable water supplies. Nairobi's water treatment facility gets choked by sediment um, and it causes supply disruptions that often happen for days or weeks at a time. And so if you can imagine this, a city of almost 5 million people having very irregular water supplies, um, you know, what the solution is, is there's obviously uh, continued investment in the water treatment facility. They're doing that, but it's not been enough. So really what we've designed is a mechanism called a payment for ecosystem service, um, so a PES system, where downstream beneficiaries, and there's beneficiaries including, you know, the, the city itself and the, 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 the people that are, you know, kind of using water out of the system, but also industry. So Coca-Cola has been a partner in this, and 
many companies have seen the wisdom in basically creating a funding mechanism to go invest upstream with farmers to create better management practices to reduce the soil loss in the system. And if you look into this watershed, many of the uh, farms are, are farmed on very sloping land. Um, these are small holder farms, so there's not a lot of technology involved. There's a lot of tillage. And so the opportunity to get very large gains in terms of sediment reduction were pretty large. And so the return on investment from investing upstream uh, was larger than putting more gray infrastructure down in the water treatment facility. So this is one where the business model said invest upstream with farmers, put that money to work on the landscape and uh, find ways to manage these farms differently. So some of the practices are very simple, simple. like we've been planting uh, napier uh, buffer strips, napier grass buffer strips. Napier grass is a is a really good high value feed. And as they've started to put these in place strategically in the watershed, they're significantly reducing erosion and also growing a, a valuable feedstock. So there's some simple methods, there's some more complex methods that we're introducing now, but we think we can significantly reduce uh, sedimentation in that watershed and really restore uh, a reliable water supply to a city like Nairobi. Uh, and that's very important for the country. So that's how nature can be invested in and create a real business model for people. Just to follow up on that, a project like that, it it takes, it would seem to me, an, an enormous amount of trust on the part of you know, the companies that are that are downstream uh, that are going to reap the benefits to say, hey, if you just invest all the way up here, the, the benefits are going to trickle down to everyone. It, you know, is there is there a trick to that? I mean, building that type of trust or is it just the credibility and the brand associated with the Nature Conservancy or uh, what can you tell us about that? Well, I, I think so. First of all, this is this is where somebody like me that's relatively new to the Nature Conservancy, I can kind of look at it from both sides. I I now look at it from inside the conservancy, but before, you know, before I was with the conservancy, I did view the conservancy as, you know, kind of this honest broker, uh, this very venerable brand that had the the ability to create mechanisms of trust and and serve as maybe that intermediary or go between to to uh, to arrange the kind of business model I just outlined, and I think that is our hallmark. Honestly, I think now being inside the conservancy, I think we take. Uh, great pride in our ability to bring together uh, parties and create business models that is guided by science. I think that's the other thing is, you know, the the science of how much sedimentation reduction we could get by applying certain practices at different scales in this watershed, you know, that was really carried out by our uh, scientists. And we've got some of the leading scientists in the world working on issues like hydrology and uh, stream ecology and, and grassland ecology uh, so we we start with the science. Uh, we bring others together around the science. We build build that as the basis for our for our for our thinking, and then you know brokering uh, these models where we can then hopefully bring parties together, uh, create a governance mechanism, and then ultimately bring the investment capital in that it takes to to uh, fund the deal. Uh, that's that's uh, we we love doing those projects, and I, and we're doing more and more of them all the time. Well, I want to end here on, on, a, on a follow-up question. The, the Techstars Sustainability Accelerator, I know the Nature Conservancy is oh. uh, involved in that. I would love to hear kind of what that is and, and the type of, of businesses you're, you're accelerating there. Sure. So, you know, as we met, just talked about finance, you know, I think, you know, we recognize the catalytic role that, you know, finance can play, as we talked about in that example on water funds, that when you 
put together the right deal and you you kind of set the terms so that finance can be pointed in a direction to invest in the right solutions and we can get uh, much bigger gains for conservation. We also believe that the same is true for innovation and that if you look at, you know, just progress over time, you know, uh, you know, everything that we now depend on and, and look to comes out of, you know, kind of entrepreneurs and, you know, innovative companies and the idea that, you know, if you can start to kind of make things better, you're going to, that's, that's what we have to do really in the end is we have to look for innovators to, to create solutions. And so we have uh, recently partnered with a group called Techstars, who is a great um, uh, kind of convener of entrepreneurs and ideas. And they do a great job of incubating small uh, startup companies and helping them grow into successful businesses that are changing the world. Uh, we are partnered with them on a conservation accelerator where we're uh, kind of crowdsourcing um, ideas that go well beyond agriculture, but agriculture is one of the themes, but into uh, improving cities and improving uh, working on climate change and a whole host of, of issues that we care about. We basically have uh, done a call for um, you know companies that are looking for assistance, looking for mentorship and uh, so now we're kind of seeding our first class. So we've we've gotten a great response out of this. We've got a lot of great small companies um, and entrepreneurs that are coming forward and saying, hey, we want to be mentored in this relationship. We want a relationship with the Nature Conservancy and Techstars. And so now we're seeding that class and we'll do another class in the future. So uh, it's just really, I think, indicative of our um, uh, our approach, which is, you know, uh, innovative businesses will drive the change that we need at the scale and pace that we need. And and so we want to see more of these innovative businesses get moving and and, and be successful with with results that really uh, align with our conservation mission. Michael, thank you so much. That's a, that's a great note to end on. With Michael Doan here, uh, Managing Director of Agriculture and Food Systems for the Nature Conservancy. Really appreciate the time today, Michael. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. How cool is that? I, I just love those examples in that story of a conservation agency that, in my opinion, is really doing things the right way, bringing people together rather than creating divisions based on ideology or, or based on solution, really rooted in science, working collaboratively. So anyway, I love that. I hope you did too. I think that is very insightful in the way that the future of agriculture is going to have to work with conservation groups to try to find optimal solutions for, for the planet and for all of us uh, in our future. So I uh, hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. Is, is there a question that I failed to ask, Michael? Head over to speakpipe.com forward slash future of ag. Introduce yourself and leave that question. I will try to follow up with Michael and see if I can get him to answer it on a future segment of this show. How are you liking the series Sustainability at Scale? I, I would love to hear from you on that. Uh, uh, ideally, if you haven't left an iTunes review, that would be a great place to start. Uh, beyond that, Feel free to send me a tweet at Tim Hamrich. I'm also on LinkedIn or via email, tim at aggrad.com. Hey, thanks so much. We will be back next week as a part of this series, Sustainability at Scale, brought to you by Marone Bio Innovations with another fascinating episode. for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com 
That's futureofagag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.